0: Well, let me, let me ask you this to begin. If you were told, if you were told that if you humbled yourself and obeyed, a great treasure would be yours, would you do it? There's no catch, so to silence those of you who would immediately be skeptical and think of all the legitimate reasons why you might not do this, know that the one you would be humbling yourself before is good, not evil, and that which you are asked to obey was void of anything sinister. It's a perfect scenario, really, so, so play along. If you were told that if you humbled yourself and obeyed that a great treasure would be yours, would you do it? The answer, of course, is yes, of course. To answer no would be the very definition of foolishness. Now let's change the perspective for a moment. Let's say that you're standing on the outside and you're looking in on this offer being made to someone else. Again, the giver is good and that which the giver is asking and offering in return is good as well. As you watch the offer unfold, it's, it's better than one of those hidden camera shows, you know, those ones where someone goes up to a complete stranger and, and they, they make this extraordinary offer, like to pay off their, their student loan or their mortgage or, you know, one of those mind blowing things. The, the treasure being offered is, by this good giver is almost incomprehensible. It's life changing in an eternal kind of way. Watching it unfold, the beauty of what is about to take place causes your your eyes to well up with tears. You know those shows that you watch and you just find that emotion boiling up within you. But suddenly the mood changes. Your tears of joy turn to tears of sorrow because shockingly the giver's offer is rejected. If the offer could have been held in one's hands, it would have been as if it had been held out only to be slapped to the ground and smashed. In horror, you watch instead of the 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 giver being thanked, the giver is cursed and reviled and mocked for their generosity. And you think, why? Why would someone do such a thing? The giver is good and the offer is great. Why would they spurn such a giver? And why would they reject such a gift? The answer to this question is a simple one and the psalmist who offers it pinpoints a problem that exists not just in the world, but that can exist in your heart and in mine. You see, I'd like to say that the scenario that I just offered was a made up one, that it was an exaggeration to make a point, but but the scenario isn't fake, nor are its implications to see this we're going to look at psalm 2 this morning so if you have a bible i would invite you to open your bible to psalm chapter 2 you're going to need it open this morning if you're using one of the pew bibles that are there you can find our passage on page 527 so i'd ask that you open your bibles there this morning and it's there that we're going to see the kind of rage that exists the kind of rage that exists in the world all around us it's it's the kind of rage that can actually exist in your heart and mind but in this we're also going to see our savior we're also going to see our savior we're going to see that he's good and that if we would humble ourselves the very gift that that we've slapped to the floor and that we've smashed out of spite or stupidity is graciously extended once again we're going to be told that all who take refuge in Christ will know God's favor and need not fear his wrath you see, God does not merely expose our sinful stupidity, but supplies the saving grace we all need. I like that you talk. With, with your Bible open to Psalm 2, it, it's, it's our habit at our church, I'm not sure what your habit is here, but if you're able, can I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word, and then I'll pray for us. Psalm chapter 2, this is the word of the Lord. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as I pray. Father in heaven, we confess that apart from a work of the spirit, our hearts will remain hard to your grace, and our ears remain closed to your word. So we ask that you would do a work by tilling the soil of our heart, breaking our pride, and unstopping our ears, so that your word would be received. In the time that we have in your word, exchange death for life, sorrow for joy, and fear for assurance. It's in the standing of Christ that we ask you to do these things. Amen. With your Bible open, if you look, the psalmist begins by asking, look back to verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? That's the question. It's a rhetorical question posed some 1,000 years before Christ. And as the New Testament explains, it's a psalm that inspired by the Holy Spirit was written by King David and is one that could be posed just as easily today. It's understood to be a, a prophetic psalm, a messianic psalm. This simply means that it was a psalm written to point forward to the day when a savior would come when that savior would judge the nations and save god's people you don't need to to turn there but know that psalm 2 is both quoted and explained for us actually in acts chapter 4. it's where jesus is identified as the anointed one the messiah god's true king over the world And it's in verse 2, we see that the raging and plotting of the nations and the people of the world is ultimately against God and the rule of His anointed one. Do you see it? But do you see this from the very beginning when God spoke, creating the heavens and the earth and man in His image? He did not let things go as though the world were some sort of divine thought experiment. When God created, He gave divine direction to His creation the pinnacle of which were men and women like you and me and he said this is how i want you to live and the beautiful thing about it is that god's instructions were not void of relationship but embedded in relationship god was not distant god was intimately known God's word and God's ways were made clear and they were intended to form the foundation on which ongoing relationship would occur the context was one where if man humbled himself and obeyed God's word the relationship that was being offered would be maintained but should man choose to go his own way disregarding God's words and disregarding God's ways death would be the result Various depictions of what followed hang in galleries around the world. A man and a woman with strategically placed greenery hold an apple as a serpent is seen slithering in a tree, and a heavenly light exposes the newly formed chasm between God and man. Of course, we don't know that it was an apple that Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but we do know that God said, Don't, and man did and it was at this very point that sin and death entered the world and the very nature of Adam and Eve and every man and every woman and every boy and every girl however sweet they look after that was changed the perfect undefiled uncontaminated relationship that man had with God had been broken and the brokenness of this relationship, it continued to grow as God's words and God's ways were rejected by generation after generation after generation of people. Whether it was Cain murdering his brother Abel or, or the warring hearts of vengeful leaders or the injustice and mistreatment of the poor, the widow, the, the fatherless, or this, this, the distorted worship As men turn to idols, the scriptures are full of accounts where men and women like you and me threw off God's rule and went our own way like the world belonged to us. And you see that's the point of the angst in the Psalm that we just read. It's the it's the underlying question really that's being still debated today. Whose world is this? Who gets to make the rules? Who gets to say what is good and right and what is not? To whom does this world belong? If you look back to verse two with your Bible open, we see that just like the world around us today, so too did the the world of old consider God's words and God's ways, not as means through which they could know his blessing and provision and have relationship with him, but instead say they were the means through which they were shackled. Look back at verse two, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. So what do they say? Let us tear off their chains, your translation might say fetters, and throw their ropes off of us. There's no question that those who reject God's words and reject God's ways are thinking and whom ultimately they are against. The nations, the peoples, the kings and the rulers, they conspire together not to pursue God and his glory, not to sit under his authority, but to throw it off and assert their own. And at its core, this challenges who this world belongs to, who is in charge. Imagine with me an absurd scenario. Picture a home where the parents have established rules in their house. That if there's a conflict, you don't hit one another. That when you come into the house, you take off your shoes. That when you sit down for dinner, you make sure everyone has enough. These rules have been established by the parents because they are the owners of the home. They are the rightful authority that those who live in the house are under. And the rules that the parents have established are an expression of their good character and for the good of the family. They're there to keep people safe and to keep things clean and to keep people fed. So imagine one of the kids coming home. It was a mucky day at school and and their shoes are all muddy and and they walk into the house and they walk toward the table. The mother sees this and says, Hey, you're supposed to take your shoes off. To which the the child replies, Shut up and punches their mother in the face. They continue to the table where they sit back with their feet up on the table and they take the plate of food that has been prepared for everyone and they begin to shovel it into their mouth until nothing is left. They do this because stopping to take their shoes off is a bother. They don't, they don't want to hear that they are in the wrong and the only one that they are concerned about is themselves. They see the, the purposes that have been set out for them by their parents, for their good, as nothing more than impeding their own self-promoting passions their actions state what their bank account can't support that the house belongs to them it's an absurd example when the context is a home but it's not far off when it comes to our heart from the very beginning men and women have heard god's words and chosen to go their own way And when they have, they have walked into the house that is God's world with their filthy shoes on, perverting his ways, told him to shut up and then struck the very one whom was given for their good, the one which was graciously provided for their salvation. God's word has been rejected from the very beginning and history shows this to be true. Sadly, history also shows that we have become much better at rejecting God in his word. When it comes to life what began as abandoning unwanted children to the elements we have now perfected at eliminating in the womb for the sick and the needy instead of offering care and support we now offer death when it comes to the foundational structure of how a people are to be known and know one another male and female created in the image of God male and female designed by God for one another A wholesale, legislated rejection of God has taken place. The nations are raging, and the peoples plot in an attempt to throw off God. But this doesn't just happen in the upper echelons of human institutions we've created. We can't simply sit back and blame premiers and prime ministers and presidents the world over. No. Though the scope is different. The outright rejection and perversion of God's ways is something that you and I, we are all guilty of. It's a, it's a common thought in our modern world that, that we're all essentially good. But by whose standard are we good? By what scale are we weighed and not found wanting? To say such a thing is to use unbalanced scales manufactured by usurpers. When God spoke to the people He had called out of Egypt and called His own, He told them as a means through which His word would become known throughout the world, that we were not to worship any other God. We're not to set up for ourselves anything that would receive our worship. We were not to misuse the name of the Lord and to remember that God is the creator of all. We were to honor our father and our mother. We were to not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not lie, not look at the things that other people had and desire them for ourselves, instead we are to be content with what God had given us. And so that we might enjoy knowing and being known by God, these things were established by God for our good. But not one of us sitting here today, not one person in the history of the world, save Jesus, can say that they are without fault with intentionality, sometimes with precise planning. My past and yours is riddled with us going our own way, with knowing the good we ought to do and not doing it, with knowing that which is not good and pursuing it despite our knowledge that it is wrong. Whether it is literally another small g God that we have ascribed power and worship to, whether our worship has been directed to the things we own or to powerful people or to our own children or to some religious teacher, whether to those who entertain us through sport or song, we have both created and we have worshiped other gods. We have misused God's name by attributing his affirmation to things that are destined for destruction. We have dishonored father and mother. We have committed murder in our hearts and adultery with our eyes. We have taken that which is not ours and spoken things that are, that are untrue. We've seen what other people have, whether it's been a home or a car or a spouse or children, and we have wanted what they have instead of accepting what God has given us. The nation's rage and the people's plot against the Lord kings take their stand rulers conspire and you and i break free of what we wrongly think shackles us so that for what is but a breath of time we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are the ones in charge so that we can claim ownership over that which we have none you see the the question undergirding the angst that this world faces the question undergirding the angst that we all face is this whose world is this who does this world belong to know that despite the denial of the majority the answer to this question is not in question look back to verse 4 with me of our text and see that the world does not belong to Kings or commoners but to the Lord and his response to our false claim is to laugh in ridicule look at verse 4 The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Imagine again with me the following scenes. A man walks into the head office of the Montreal Canadiens and says to the owner, Jeff Molson, listen, I I watch hockey on Saturday nights. I, I can run this team better than you. So from here on out, you're out. This team is mine. Or this, a teenager walks onto the floor of the National Assembly and declares before Premier Francois Legault and all the members gathered that because they put a little time in as part of the student council that they, were going, that they were there to let everybody know, they could all go home. The teen was now in charge, they had it. Or a woman walks into the Montreal Children's Hospital and says to the executive director, Martine Alfonso, and all the doctors and all the nurses, to all the surgeons and specialists, you can all go home. I've got this because I have experienced putting band-aids on boo-boos. The claim of the man who has still yet to win his fantasy hockey pool, uh, of the teenager who has only ever organized bake sales, of of the woman who has cleaned a cut but has never figured out how to cure childhood cancer. They're absurd. They are so crazy that Jeff Molson, Francois Legault, and Martine Alfonso, they just laugh in ridicule before they have them thrown out. And maybe you can hear that kind of laugh. You know that laugh? <laughs> that kind is, is scornful. It's the kind that acts as the vain veneer temporarily, the, the thin veneer temporarily separating the usurper from the righteous anger and the wrath that, wrath that they are due. Look back to verse 5. We see it. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Do you see that in verse 5? If this world belongs to you, then do what you want. Honestly, if you're sitting here today and you think this is all yours, do whatever you want. But if it doesn't, and you and I know that it doesn't, there is a word of warning to anyone who would set themselves up thinking though it does. Here's what God says he will do through his anointed. Look at verse 6. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The term Zion or or holy mountain is referencing the place where God's perfect rule exists. In parts of the Old Testament, it's a term attributed to a specific place, Jerusalem, but but more generally, it's a spiritual term. It's not referring to a a physical space, but to the spiritual space that is is your heart and mine. So if you look back at verse 6, on Zion, my holy mountain, is a picture of... Where the kings of the earth and all the peoples of the earth are gathered on one hill in defiance of God. And you and I were among them. In a way, we're shaking our fists at God. We have our, in another way, we have our backs to God. Cutting the cords to God. And Jesus is set on the other hill, on God's holy hill against them and that's why he ridicules our puny efforts of independence because his king in verses 7 to 9 he's been given all the nations of the world and their rebellion will be broken by that king with a rod of iron and they will be smashed to pieces like a clay pot in reality it's no contest Here's Jesus speaking in verses 7 to 9. Look there. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. As I say, in reality, it's, it's no contest at all. It's the pride of man against the power of God. And in reality, that's what it is. That's what it is. We live our short lives in this world doing it our way, causing much pain and misery along the way, whether it's in wars or, or marital breakups or shallow, selfish living, whatever the thing is, all living without reference to our maker. And then we perish. We come from dust and we go to dust. It's no contest. And while we all know this to be true, the real shock of this psalm is this. It's Jesus bringing about the judgment and death. The judgment of death. That's that's what the psalm says. It's it's Jesus who's doing this. Now, hang on a second. You might say, wait, I thought Jesus was, was lowly and gentle and meek and What's going on here? Let me just read a couple familiar verses from John's gospel for us. In John, John chapter 3, verse 16, one that's familiar to many of us, says, For God so loved the world, God loved the world in this way, He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And then in verse 36 of chapter 3, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life, instead the wrath of God remains on him did you notice the word perish in that first one that I read did you notice that the wrath of God remains on us in this second verse those verses are often read with the, the love and eternal life emphasized and and that's good but it is listen again Jesus came so that we would not perish And he came and said, all who believe would not have the wrath of God remaining on them. You see, that's the natural state of of people in this planet. We are a planet under God's wrath. And if we look around us day by day, there are many signs of God in his wrath, giving us up to ourselves, just as it says in Romans chapter 1. So God wrote this psalm as a warning. If we look back at verse 10, we will hear that warning look there so now Kings be wise receive instruction you judges of the earth here's the warning and I would argue that yes this is a, a clear warning to to Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Zelensky and to the various sheikhs and Kings that claim control that how you rule apart from God's rule will one day be brought into judgment so too will the rule that you and I exert over our own lives. So he's writing it as a warning to us. This is how you are. This is how I am. And this is what I'm going to do. And the question is today, do we take this warning seriously and wisely or do we just carry on walking through lives with our backs to God, not knowing the day or the hour of our death? Now know this. We can take this warning seriously and we can actually do something about it. We can turn around and and face God, the the Son, Jesus, and, and submit in fear and trembling to Him. If you look at verse 11 of Psalm 2, look there, it says, Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son or He will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for His anger may ignite at any moment now the irony of the thing we are called to do is this I don't know if you saw it the only place of refuge for us is the source of wrath it is by going to the source of wrath it's by turning around and running to it running to God himself and if we do take refuge in him then we're safe from his wrath And God, the Son, Jesus, the rightful King, the one who wields that rod of iron, becomes our Savior if we take refuge in Him. Now understand that this offer has already been made. If we think back to the beginning of of our time together, the, the good giver is God, and that which He offers us is the Son. But the offer that was made The offer that if it could have been held in one's hands, it would have been as if it had been held out only to be slapped to the ground and smashed. Instead of thanking the giver, the giver is cursed and reviled and mocked for his generosity. This is what happens when the nations rage, rejecting God's words and rejecting God's ways. If we think in historical terms, so violent was their raging, so complete was their rejecting, that they took the gift of grace, which is Christ, and instead of thanking the giver, they cried out against him, crucify him, crucify him. They stripped the Savior of his clothes and they whipped him. Mockingly, they placed a a crown of thorns on his head and they nailed him to a cross. And the passers-by, they cursed him. But this was not an isolated act of evil from men far away a long time ago. But it is what each one of us has done in our own hearts. And in so many ways we continue to do. There's a song that may be known to you. How deep the Father's love for us. You know that song? In it we sing, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. My voice and yours has on more times than we can count claimed that this world belongs to us. Throwing off what we have wrongly perceived to be divine chains and ropes, we have like fools cried out among the scoffers proclaiming our emancipation when in reality what we have assumed are the chains of bondage through which all manner of sin leads us to death. But thanks be to God, for implicit in a warning of judgment is the offer of grace. Do you hear it today? How does he do this? In Isaiah, we read about all of us being like sheep going astray. Listen, the reality of our defiance is not in question. And knowing that our need is one that you and I are unable to remedy in and of ourselves. Isaiah goes on to write that the Lord has laid on him, speaking of Jesus, the iniquity of us all. All of the things that we have done, not done, and are going to do that are against God's words and God's ways. All of those things that you are too ashamed for anyone else to know about you. All of that guilt, all of it it was placed on Christ. All of it. Hear this. Every single thing, that thing that you would rather die without someone else knowing, that was placed on Christ. Hear that today. You see, Jesus is God's king. He is the king with the iron rod who will smash all those in rebellion against him. And one has to say looking around the world that most people, billions of people die facing eternal separation from God. They have not turned around and here they are being smashed. And that's the reality of it. But he's also the king that laid down his life on the cross. He's the one who took on himself the wrath and the punishment of God for all those who would take refuge in him he substituted himself for us. So we go back to those verses in John again. You remember those? For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And in verse 36, the one who believes in the son has eternal life. So those who are in Jesus do not perish, but they have eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So it is turning around and going to the source of wrath that actually ensures that we have eternity with God rather than eternity separated from Him. So what's our response to this warning? Do we carry on cutting away those cords? It's so easy to do, isn't it? Sin always offers us something in the moment or do we turn in repentance and faith to Jesus, our refuge in fear and in trembling? The first words of Jesus in Mark's gospel are, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Because if we do, the final irony is that these, those bonds and, and cords are actually light and they're easy. We keep cutting them because we think that they take our independence and, and make our lives heavy. But in Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. <laughs> take my yoke and, and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the psalmist ends Look to the end of verse 12 with me. Happy. Or your translation might read, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. If you're not a Christian, if you've not acknowledged that you've been living as one who has believed that this world belonged to you, if you've not, if you've been one who has not cared about God, this psalm is a warning. Hear that. This psalm is a warning be warned that the response to rebellion is destruction. It is no contest. Consider the words of a a gracious God who holds out the offer of peace and reconciliation despite our past rejection of Him. So be wise and take refuge in Him while you can, even today. Place your hope in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and be blessed for eternity. If you were told that if you humbled yourself and obeyed, a great treasure would be yours, would you do it? You see, God does not merely expose our our sinful stupidity, but supplies the saving grace we all need. And thanks be to God for that. Would you join me as I pray? Lord God Almighty, We do acknowledge that you are God, and we confess our rebellious spirit. That we so often lead our lives without reference or even thought of you. We thank you for your king that you've set on your holy hill, and we pray that by a work of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus would reign in each one of our hearts and help each one of us to daily take refuge in him, to honor him, and to be his people people of light and salt in a dark world which is under your wrath. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.